Let me pray as we get started in our sermon. Father God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for what's happened um, as you entered our reality in a really vulnerable way. It doesn't seem to make sense that the God of the universe would humble himself to enter our history in a time and a place as a person and walk among us, dwell with us, live with us, experience what we experience, yet be without sin. And you went along in your life and you suffered much for the sake of your people. And so we ask this morning that you would give, her, give us like sort of uh, like, like we're looking into a diamond and we're twir- twirling it around and seeing the light shine through it, that we're seeing all the different facets of what it means, what Christmas means. We pray that you would make it clear to us that, that maybe Christmas becomes rote to us, Father God, but that this morning, that each person sitting in this room would be struck by something different that they've never thought of before and that it would reignite that joy of what this really means. It's not about Santa Claus, not about shopping. It's about you, and we want to glorify your name this morning. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So today we celebrate Christmas, obviously, the day after. I hope you had a good one. I did. Uh, busy. My, by the way, my house did not burn down. If you were here Friday night, you heard I had to stop the sermon and, you know, ha- have somebody call my house because my foster son was home saying the, the turkey was burning. Uh, but it turned out great. The turkey was in perfect shape. So anyway, but um, we had a good Christmas, very busy cooking with everybody, playing games around the house, things like that. Um, But we celebrate Christmas in the fact that we were helpless to save ourselves. So God entered our reality in the person of Jesus Christ to save us, right? And that is what we're celebrating today. And as a result of Christmas, result of that act, we live in the constant confidence of God's presence in our lives, right? And today, we're going to look at not the regular Christmas story, but we're going to look at the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1 of John, markedly different from all the other Gospels in the sense of his poetic, poetic retelling of, uh, of God's creation to begin the story of the life and death of the Word of God, the, 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 the Messiah of God, right? Jesus Christ who came to us in that manger. So turn with me to page 723 of your pew Bibles as we read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I'll preface that while you're looking that up. John, uh, page 723 in your pew Bibles, John chapter 1. And in the beginning, or in the giving of Jesus uh, at Christmas, as in the giving of life at creation, which John references in this passage, God, we see God at work, right? God is always at work. Sort of the self-giving of God links creation and redemption together because he's been giving of himself to humanity from the very beginning of time, right? And so in the incarnation, God does what he's always done, only more clearly in this act. John 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to start, stop there for a minute, but leave your Bibles open on your, on your laps. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. In other words, they see together or they see with each other. And they are similar, but they are written from different perspectives. John's Gospel kind of stands alone by itself, whereas they, they give the what of the story. Uh, he gives the why, so to speak, right? So that's how he is unique. But John uses the term here, as you may know, uh, logos in this prologue, and we translate that into the English as the word. And words, remember, define and reveal who we are, and they really cannot be separated from us. Uh, it, would, it would be better if we all knew that fact and were careful, more careful with our word, words, right? Words are thoughts and feelings communicated to other people. Uh, shared thought is unity uh, between people, right? Shared words. Uh, words originate from within us. They, they are, uh, and, and that's why they're so important, you know, in, in life. John speaks with loaded language as he writes to both Jews and Gentiles. And we have to realize that. He writes to Jews and Greeks and all Gentiles, all peoples. Remember Jewish scholars in Alexandria in Egypt in 275 B.C., translated the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures into, uh, into Greek at that time, and they utilized the Greek word logos to translate the Hebrew word debar, if I'm saying it correctly. And Hebrews saw the word of God not merely as words. They weren't just words on a page, but they, it was powerful and effectual means of accomplishing God's purposes in the world, right? So by his word, he spoke creation into existence. God communicated his word directly to prophets in the, you know, in the law and the prophets. The, the wise person is the person that lives in accordance with the word of God. To follow God means obedience to his word. To, to them, the word of God was perfect. It was powerful. It was directive. It was good. It had healing power. It had creative power, all that stuff. And so to Jews, the word of God was inseparable from God. They were one and the same, right? For them, words were mere, you know, weren't, they weren't just words. They were extremely important, right? So to equate Jesus with the debar of God is to equate Jesus to God himself. And you have to understand that. It's a hard pill to swallow for Jews. If it was untrue, it was outright blasphemy. But if it is true then it changes the world. And there may, need, there may be no clearer statement to the deity of Christ than John's words right here in this first chapter of his, his gospel. You know, in contrast, the Greek word logos didn't refer to a person at all. It wouldn't. In early Greek thought, there was no concept of a personal God who created the world in order and harmony at all. Logos was an abstract principle which ordered reality. It, it, it was an impersonal sort of philosophic principle, not a personal being that was involved in the world. And Greeks, as we know, were dualistic in their thinking. The material world, uh, considered imperfect and even evil, evil, couldn't interact with the spiritual world, which was perfect and good. And Logos was 
given great significance by Greek philosophers. The Stoics emphasized sort of the, the logos spermatikos, the seminal word, right? The rational principle pervading all of reality, providing sort of meaning and order to the universe and to people. And it creates coherence and unity and, and provides orderly patterns for existence and it holds everything together, right? The Stoics, if you remember, that Paul debated on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 19, held to this notion, right? All things were composed of this ultimate seminal fire, this logos, promatikos, and the seminal word was, had procreative power, uh, the word that begets life and order and harmony. There were, they were the first to say that every person has a spark of divinity in them. We thought that was new, but that was an old saying, right? Paul noticed an altar as he was there talking to them to an unknown God. That's what it was inscribed, uh, inscribed on it, which he proclaimed to them to be Jesus, the knowable Logos, which came down to us as Christ, at Christmas in, this, in, in the form of this child. But by the time the Gospels were written, the notion of Logos was a loaded philosophical idea. It really was. And John dropped sort of a theological bombshell by talking about Jesus not as an impersonal concept, but as the incarnation of the eternal Logos. So he didn't use uh, the term in a, in a Greek fashion at all. He fills it with Jewish Christian meaning, right? He infuses it with that. So for John, the Logos, this word of God, was intensely personal and radically different from the Greek philosophy that you know, everybody shared at that time. Logos as a person, not as a principle, born to us in a manger on Christmas Day. And that's what he's saying. So Jesus' logos wasn't, then wasn't merely an angel. You know, some people would, say, would have said that. Uh, he wasn't just a, another created being uh, as an agent of creation. You know, he wasn't just another word from God, right? G John claims that Jesus, hey, how are you? <laughs> John claims that Jesus was God himself. And, and in relation to humanity, Jesus, the Logos, wasn't the impersonal principle of Stoicism, but a personal Savior who took on flesh as a child, growing up and experiencing life just like the rest of us, going through all the ups and downs like we did and we do, right? Logos becoming flesh, living among us, was in sharp contrast to Greek ideas. So by depicting Jesus as Logos, John portrays him as the pre-existent creator of the universe. With, he was with and identical to God. From somebody, people have asked me over the years, did, did Jesus ever claim to be uh, divine or did the scriptures ever claim that Jesus was divine? Well, this is one of, one of the places. It really was. From this perspective, of his divinity and his, e his eternity, any view of him as a mere sort of prophet or a mere teacher is absolutely impossible. So this concept of Christ coming to us as, at Christmas in the form of a person, right, coupled with the grace that Christianity teaches, sets Christianity apart from all other religions. There is no religion that is like Christianity. 
You might think they are from the outside. There's many paths to God, blah, blah, blah. That's, that is not true. That is not true. Now, in other New Testament texts, Logos refers to Scripture, especially in preaching the gospel. The, uh, the, the preaching of the gospel brings order and harmony and meaning to lives that are shattered by sin. We see that. Those who put faith in Jesus will be welcomed into the family of God. That's the promise of Scripture. So when we preach the gospel, we don't just throw out words. There, it is a powerful moment when we preach the gospel. We preach Jesus bringing order and meaning to a person's life. And you've got to understand that. As John says, Jesus is the light which shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish him, no matter how dark it seems to get, Right? The Word became human, born in a manger, dwelling among us. Jesus, God revealed. John is saying he is the creator of all the heavens and all the earth. He is the transcendent power behind the universe. He is the ultimate reality of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter of the, of the Greek alphabet. He hems in all things. He is the first and the final word of all things. Hence our Alpha course, starting January 12th, if you, if you didn't hear me say that before, right? A discussion and an ex exploration of Jesus as God's word to humanity. Preach the announcements. Ooh, got it. All right. But it continues, verse 6, if you look back at your Bibles, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know that to be John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. He came to Israel. But his own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That was John the Baptist saying that. And out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father was made, has made him known. So the writer John states Jesus as uncreated, right? Something that John the Baptist realized when he said, someone's coming after me who's greater than, far greater than I am, you know, who existed long before me. Now, you got to realize John the Baptist was three months older than Jesus, right? But he grasped the uncreated great nature of Christ Christ came before himself. And for John the writer and John the Baptist, in Jesus, Jesus becomes this personable, knowable God, right? 
In Jesus, we meet the eternal God. So John states the Logos isn't only with God, but is God, right? There may be some difficulty in saying some, something or saying the, the, the word is both with and in God or both distinguished from God or identified with God. But what he is saying is that Christ is the same as God the Father, yet we are able to distinguish him from the Father. So they are one in being, but two in person. Uh, add the Holy Spirit in there, three, right? Father and Son, one being distinguished in terms of personality and work and ministry. Now, in this prologue, the idea of the Logos being with God is very significant. Greek language had three different words for the word, the English word we translate with, right? The first was son, uh, rendered in English as the prefix sin, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, right? Found in words such as synoptic, so they see with or see together. Synchronize, syncretism, synagogue. Right, So synagogue's a place where you go and gather with other people, right, to be in a group of people. The second is meta. So that means to be alongside of or side by side with somebody. So if I'm walking down the street with you, side by side with you, I'm meta you in a sense. And a third word was pros, right, found less frequently, but it's part of another Greek word, prosopon, if I'm saying that correctly, which means uh, face, and this is the kind of witness that, that, that is the most intimate of all of the three words. John is saying the Logos existed with God, pros God, face to face in relationship of eternal intimacy with God, right? Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Right? Now, it's this kind of relationship that the Jews long to have with God. That's what they wanted. And the Logos enjoys this kind of intimate face-to-face relationship from all of eternity with the Father, the Father and Son, one in relationship and being for all of eternity. In Jesus, therefore, this intimacy with God becomes available to humankind. Because as John states here, writing to both Jew and Gentile, remember, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Think of John chapter 3 and Nicodemus in that conversation. In other words, this baby born in the manger, this logos, this word of God, God himself, born among us, is for anyone who would receive him. Face-to-face intimacy available with God through Jesus to all of humankind. This baby offered to all people something that the prophet Simeon noticed as Christ was dedicated at the temple, right? You remember they came along and they put the baby Jesus in Simeon's arms. And Simeon had been told that he wouldn't die until he saw the salvation of Israel, the, the salvation of all peoples, actually, in his own words, the Messiah. He, he would see the Savior of, of, of all peoples. In Luke chapter 2, uh, when Jesus was presented to him, he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, talking about himself. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've got to realize he was holding Jesus, saying this as he's looking at Jesus. 
which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for, for your people Israel. So Simeon, I don't know how a guy like him, out of all the other sea of people there, saw clearly. Simeon knew the promise of God. He, the promised Messiah all throughout Scripture a promise of light for revelation to the Gentiles, revealing that Messiah was for all, for all people, stretching beyond just the cultural borders of Israel, offered to everybody. The promise that Simeon had been waiting for patiently for all those years came about in Jesus, born in a manger. The Messiah, the Holy One of God, the second Adam, who would offer eventually forgiveness of sin, right? Now, our human response to the coming of Christ at Christmas is anticipation, so to speak. But the power and the desire to save comes first and foremost for God. Even our own faith is a gift from God. We do nothing to get it. When John declares that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, he is using very forceful language. More literally, he's saying the darkness cannot lay hold of it. The darkness cannot take possession of the light. The light is too powerful. It overtakes the darkness. This light enlightens everyone, giving believers the right to become children of God. And no earthly power can compare to that. And we can only thankfully receive this gift of the Savior, and we can never earn our place with God. We just receive it. Another pastor told the story of a, a wedding he did years ago in a big old chapel, and they had these big giant wooden doors in the back of the, the, the chapel where the bride would come through. And this little lady who was the wedding coordinator was really small, and, and uh, to open these doors was difficult for her. So she had to plant her feet and pull with all her might and throw her weight against these doors, and, and she would fling them open. And then there was, there was the bride. He said it was just breathtaking. It was like a vision, right, when he was doing the ceremony. And that's really what Jesus has done for us, right? He's flung open the doors of salvation forever for any that, any that would come through it. We are never shut out. We are never excluded. We are never told we don't belong. And the, the irony is we don't tell people about this, Right? You remember that was symbolized in the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the most holy place where God resided, God's Shekinah glory resided, and, and separated from everything else. I think it was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, and I think it was three inch thick of woven yarn. Nobody could rip that. But when Christ was crucified, that was ripped from top to bottom. And that symbolized that now we can all go in uh, through those doors with joy and confidence and hope. That's what this baby did in the manger. You know, in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you remember that if you were, all those old cartoons, they were the best, right? They were just great. And when the, Who, you know, when the Who's down in Whoville woke up on Christmas morning and their houses were bare and their refrigerators were bare and their Christmas trees were all gone and everything else, even their mouses had nothing to eat, right? Um, but they gather and they sing anyway, don't they? You remember that scene? And remember how the, green, the Grinch thought to himself. He thought, 
What if Christmas doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? Maybe Christmas wasn't about peace, something that old cringe didn't have at the least. Maybe he thought about Jesus and what he did on that tree. And maybe for the first time he thought, maybe he did that for me. Then the Grinch said, no, 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 no. That couldn't be so. I'm a wretched old thing, doesn't he know? Then a still small voice told him something quite new. It's happened to others. It can happen to you. Then he realized Christmas isn't about gifts at all. God loves everyone, the tall and the small. It had all sunk in. It was really quite true. He loves Grinches as well as the Who's. God had given the ultimate gift from above. His son, whom he gave freely to everyone in love. Then his sleigh entered Whoville really quite fast, and they opened the circle and they let it go past. Praise God in the highest, the Grinch yelled with glee. He can even save an old sinner like me. This is really an awfully wonderful sensation. Thank God in Christ I'm a new creation. Wouldn't that be a better ending to the Grinch? I think it would. It really would. Christmas does mean a whole lot more than packages and feasts and burning turkeys in my oven. And we can't make or manufacture this gift of grace that came to us in the birth of Jesus. Christmas just happens to us. And we can only open our arms and receive Jesus and celebrate and walk through the doors of the chapel. This gift does change the world, though, if you think about it. I don't know if you know the story, but one British soldier, Henry Williamson, described Christmas Day on the Western Front in 1914 when British and German soldiers climbed out of their trenches to meet in the no-man's land in between them. That's what that strip of land is called, no-man's land. And both armies had started to call to each other uh, from the other side, saying, come out and get a Christmas gift. I'll give you a cigar, you know, whatever, and... Neither fully trusted each other until one lone British soldier, I think his name was Tommy, uh, climbed out, you know, at the fear of being shot and stood in the middle between the two trenches. And then a German came out and they shook hands and they laughed and then everybody flooded out of their trenches and they met in the middle and they exchanged gifts and they sang carols and they took photographs and they played football together. And they even had a funeral for the Germans that had died in the last attack. Henry later wrote, We still hope that that vision of peace we live during those few hours may be real and everlasting. And it is real and it is everlasting and everybody needs it. Christmas stopped a war. The The birth of Jesus happened to us and for us, and the call to celebrate transcends national boundaries and any circumstance. And we come to Jesus, the living word of God, to find light and life. And as he said to Nicodemus, and John restates here, we must be born again in him. We can't find God in any other means, by any other means, other than God's word communicated to us in the person of Jesus. It's the only way he's communicating to the world. And those who reject him reject God. 
Let's not be, you know, ignorant to that fact. Those who reject him reject God. Those who find him, though, find light and life forever. As Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, for, our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the concept of the Logos comes to climax as we read in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Dwelling literally meant to pitch your tent among them, right? So in the Old Testament, God dwelt with His people by means of the tabernacle, by the tent of meeting where Israel would go to meet with God, right? And the New Testament tabernacle is the incarnate word, the logos who embodies the truth of God himself. This mind of God, these wor- this word of God made flesh, dwelling with us in bodily form. It's the most amazing thing that you're ever going to hear. So in Jesus, we meet the eternal God the tent of meeting, the manifestation of God's glory on earth. God came to us in the most non-threatening, vulnerable way possible. A child in a manger, worshipped by kings, announced by angels, worshipped by shepherds, and even under a death penalty as soon as he got here. So Merry Christmas, right? For the year ahead, I hope you all dwell in his light, which cannot be extinguished by the darkness of this world, no matter how dark it seems to get, it can't be extinguished. God has spoken to you in Jesus, the eternal word of God as baby in a manger, and I hope that you will receive and celebrate his life today and every single day, and that you will spread that light wherever you can. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the light of the world. We thank you that we have a God that is not afraid to mix himself in this creation. We thank you that we are not dualistic, that we don't see the material world as separate from you, but you come in to it, that everything that we do, think, say, or about is spiritual in nature. So we ask for conviction by your Holy Spirit, conviction by your word to walk this out well and share this story with others. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.